God, we trust that it's you who invites us into this space, not that we would have the audacity to invite you, but you are inviting us. Your presence is already here as we've sang. There's nowhere where we can go, not even to the depths of hell that would separate us from your great love. And so you invite us, you're calling us by name as, a, as individuals and as a people to be a part of a new kind of community and centered on the person, life, and teachings of Jesus Christ. And we just give you thanks. You would love us so much that you would send your son to not only save us, but to lead us, to show us the way. We trust that you're able to come and meet us in this time to change us. Holy Spirit, come and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our salvation. Amen. I'm going to start by saying something controversial. I might say a few things controversial today. We'll see how it goes. Um, uh, but uh, that's always fun, right? Come to church, hear some controversial stuff. This one's not super controversial. I'll, I'll get more so later. But uh, some of you are going to be like, I, I, I don't know if I can, I can't believe a pastor would say that. Others would say, amen, I'm on board. And then others would be like, I don't understand why that's controversial. But uh, all of those responses are perfectly okay. Um, I'm going to start by saying this. I think one of the most reasonable things you can do is to not believe in miracles. Very reasonable. Um, entirely reasonable to not believe in miracles. Miracles, you know, like healings, supernatural encounters, the, the impossible and the implausible happening. Miracles, you know. Lay people out on the floor. Miracles. It's perfectly reasonable to not believe in miracles. And I'm not going to pull the room, but I'd guess about a third of us here, and this is a guess, third of us who are joining on or listening on, if you really thought about it, you'd say, I don't really believe in miracles anymore. Maybe that's something that happened in the past, but it doesn't happen today. I haven't seen it. I believe it when I see it, that sort of thing. Maybe another third does. Maybe you've experienced a miracle or not, but you believe that God is God and believe that God can do whatever God wants to do, and God can do beyond what we could ever think or imagine. And maybe there's a third of us that haven't much thought about it. I could be wrong. I'm just saying for the sake of conversation, that's my guess. Uh, one thing I can say for this, uh, for sure, is this, that it's entirely reasonable to not believe in miracles. Think about it like this. They hardly ever happen, right? By definition, a miracle is the exception to the rule, which is, you know, an important thing that I remind us. Miracles, by definition, are the exception to the rule. They are what don't normally happen, so, which means they don't normally happen. And when they do happen, they tend to be, you know, you can maybe find ways to justify them, circumstantial, experiential, whatever. No one, not even people who believe in miracles, tend to experience them every day. At least that's been my experience. Uh, so they aren't necessarily helpful. And, and you can't wait for one. Like, you can't just, like, I'm just going to wait for the miracle to happen. And, and sometimes we have to. Don't get me wrong. I'm being a little cynical now. you got to just stay with me. There's a point for it. But, you know, sometimes we can't wait for one because who knows if it's going to happen. They are, by definition, the impossible becoming possible. That's, that's what a miracle is. And that just doesn't happen very often. The world works the way that the world works. And when, we, when have we ever seen it happen otherwise? Now, to be fair, I am playing the devil's advocate a little bit, and I hope you'll see by the end why. So I just want to sit there, though. Let's just be cynical together, can we? <laughs> be just a nice cynical community, and don't pretend like you aren't already. I know some of you are. I can be. So just for the sake of conversation, we can agree it's 
and I'm not saying you agree with this, but just for the sake of the conversation, it's reasonable to not believe in miracles just for this morning, just for the sake of today's lesson. We started a new series called Encounters. Uh, During this series, we're going to be looking at a number of encounters that people have with Jesus. And in fact, one of the most important tools, regardless of what else I say today, this is the most important one. When you came in here, you should have got one of these. If not, they're in the back. And if you're online, they're going to plop a link in the online where you can download a PDF. You can print it out or you can grab one next time you're here. Or if you really want one printed, we'll mail it to you. Just let us know. But it's a simple journal. And one of the things we're going to do, on Sundays, we're going to look at encounters that people have with Jesus. What we're all going to do over this period of time that we call Lent, leading up to Easter, is we're going to spend some intentional time reflecting on the encounters that we have with other people. For a couple of reasons. Um, there is a sense that the old bumper sticker saying might go, you're, you're the only Bible someone will read. There's a sense that if you are a follower of Jesus, you might be the, the best representation and maybe not a perfect representation of Jesus to somebody. Like, we are Jesus to the world. The scripture says we are the body of Christ. So we have to spend some time. How are we representing Jesus? So we'll think about our encounters. How are you representing Jesus? But there's also this other sense where the people we encounter were made in the image of God. And do we spend enough time reflecting on the ways in which we see the image of God and the people we encounter? So this journal is designed to help us reflect on the most mundane interactions you can have. You know, you, you run into somebody at the grocery store, but also the most profound interactions you have. You get into an argument with your spouse. And so all you do every week, it's not a daily thing, so it's super easy. At the end of the week, you just write down four or five encounters that you remember that stood out to you for some reason. And then there's some reflection questions where we think about how did I see the image of God in that person and and where was I grateful and et cetera. So this this is a very, very interesting process. I really encourage you to do this. Um, As we look on Sunday mornings at the encounters that Jesus has with other people and that other people have with Jesus, we want to spend some time thinking about the ways in which we encounter other people and how they encounter us. Does that make sense? So I really encourage you to do this. I can't make you. No shame if you don't, but I think it'll be really helpful. And honestly, it's going to be really easy. So be sure to get one of these journals. Be sure to download it and follow along if you're online. So that's where we're going. But um, uh, on Sundays, we're going to look at encounters people have with Jesus. And let me just say that the vast majority of of encounters people have with Jesus result in a miracle. Countless stories of miracles when people encounter Jesus. People near Jesus witness more miracles in the three years of Jesus' ministry probably than all of our experiences combined. I don't want to speak for us. And maybe you might look at that and see that as a wonder, you know, wonder whether the gospel maybe was uh, telling the whole story. Or maybe you look at that and you're just reminded how much greater Jesus is than us. But there are countless miracles in the gospel. And many of them, at least the ones that involve encounters with Jesus, have to do with healing. Not all. You know, Jesus, one miracle Jesus does randomly is he produces a coin in a fish's mouth. You guys remember that story? That's not really healing. That's an interesting miracle. Not experienced that myself. Not done a lot of fishing, though, either, to be fair. Um, But most of them, a lot of them, have some kind of healing. And it's a story that's told over and over and over in the Gospels, a healing story. So much so that the writers of the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John follow a particular pattern when they're telling a story about healing. They follow a format. 
It's how you tell the story. It's like how you, the fairy tales have a certain format. Rom-coms have a certain format. They follow a formula, whether we like it or not. Stories typically follow a formula. And healing stories happen so often, we found that they begin to follow a formula, a format. And here it is. I'm going to put it up on the screen. The first, this is what a typical healing story looks like. You see it over and over again. Number one, someone is desperate. They're sick, they're ill, they're bleeding, they're demon-possessed, they're hurting. They need help. Oh, they're, they're desperate for it. This is one of the most important parts of, the, of, of a healing story. They, they want it more than anything. Oh, if only I could be healed of X, Y, and Z. Number two, they hear about Jesus. Word spreads throughout the area, and they hear about Jesus, and they're like, hmm, I wonder if this guy might be able to do it. The pool that I've been sitting by hasn't helped, or you know, the doctors haven't helped. I mean, this is the variety of healing stories they hear about Jesus. Then, number three, they always have to overcome barriers to get to Jesus. And I don't know what it is about the world and the person of Jesus, but this is still true today. They have to overcome barriers to get to Jesus. And then four, Jesus has to ignore everyone else's protests. Happens over and over again. Because everyone around them, it's sometimes the disciples, it's sometimes religious rulers, it's sometimes just the crowds in a general sense. They're like, that person's not worth your time. Don't heal them. Well, Jesus ignores it, and so, of course, Jesus heals them. And number six, the person typically is grateful and filled with joy. We'll look at a story where not everyone who was healed was grateful, and that's a a sermon for, uh, I think, next week. But uh, generally, they're grateful and they're filled with joy. A good example of this is Luke chapter 18. You don't have to go there, but if you want to, you can. It's a story where the blind beggar approaches Jesus. And this story serves as a good outline for miracles and healings in the gospel. This blind beggar is desperate for good reason. He is poor and he can't see. He's probably poor because he can't see. No social services to take care of him. He can't work because he's blind. There's no ADA to protect him. And so he, all he can do is beg. And so he's desperate. He wishes he could get his sight back. So he hears about Jesus and he seeks Jesus out, which is, I'm not joking, very difficult to do if you're blind. Like it just is. He, he, how do you find Jesus when you can't see? Um, and if you read his story, he, he does it by yelling a lot. <laughs> he doesn't know where Jesus is, but he heard Jesus is in the area. So he just starts yelling, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, heal me. There's a great song that plays off of this, but Jesus happens to be very popular and is usually busy teaching or talking or eating with people. Jesus is always doing something else already. And so Jesus is busy. Jesus has things to do. So this person always has to find a way to get to Jesus. And here we see that he has to push through the crowds. That's the barrier that he has to do to get to Jesus. He has to push through the crowds. This is one of the most common barriers for someone who wants to experience Jesus or encounter Jesus is crowds, the world, popularity of Jesus actually makes it hard. The crowds and the popularity of Jesus keep him from being easy to access. Another story that we'll look at later involves a woman who won't stop bleeding. She has to push through the crowds to get to Jesus. Another story that we're not going to look at involves friends who are trying to help someone who needs healing. And they have to climb to the roof, and they dig a hole in the roof, which was most likely made of palm branches, which is why they did it And uh, in this area of Galilee. And then they lowered their friend. You remember these stories? Maybe some of you grown up in the church. These typical stories, the crowds make it hard to get to Jesus over and over again. So there's something keeping people from seeing Jesus, and they have to fight through. And quite frankly, that's a lesson in and of itself. Maybe that's all you needed to hear today. 
that the mere popularity of Jesus and the crowds surrounding Jesus and the people who wanted at Jesus make it hard for us to connect to Jesus. Maybe we don't see miracles because we aren't willing to push past the things that are keeping us from Jesus. But they meet Jesus eventually, and here's what usually happens. Jesus talks to them or goes in the process of talking to them, and it becomes clear that the disciples or the crowds or the religious rulers, somebody doesn't want them to be healed. And maybe it's because it's the Sabbath and they don't want Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, or maybe it's because this person is a sex worker and Jesus shouldn't be associating with them in general, or maybe it's because it's a blind beggar and he probably smelled bad, had bad social skills and didn't dress right and was yelling in the street, Jesus, son of David, heal me. In fact, he was making such a ruckus that people tell him to shut up. You can read it in Luke chapter 18. The crowds are like, stop bothering Jesus. You see it over and over again. But Jesus ignores the protest of others. He talks to the person, the beggar, the sex worker, the woman who is bleeding. He ignores the protest of everyone who says that they aren't worth Jesus' time. And maybe that's the lesson you need today. Everyone's like, don't bother with that person. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to bother with that person. They're worth my time. They're not worth anyone else's time, but they're worth my time. Maybe that's all you needed to hear today. People will come up with loads of reasons why you're not worth the time. But with Jesus, you always are. And so Jesus listens. And he often listens by asking a question. And this is important. This is a question Jesus likes to ask. And so you could say that Jesus is asking you as well. What do you want? I don't know if you've thought about that, but that's a question I think you need to be, you need to realize Jesus is asking you, what do you want? What do you want from me? And they would say, I want to see again. I want to live again. I want to be healed. I want to, whatever it may be. And you know what happens? Jesus heals them. Oh, it's a glorious story over and over in the Gospels. It's a miracle story. It's a healing story. And that's the kind of story we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a story that follows this pattern, this format, exactly. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that, that the story we're going to look at is anything but a miracle story, a story about healing. But it's also a story that unless I spend all of this time bringing you up to speed and sharing all of this that maybe you thought interesting or not, or maybe you're ready to check out, if I hadn't spent time recognizing the pattern, you could read this story a thousand times, and likely maybe you have read it or sang the song about it, and not realize that this is actually a story about one of the strangest, most miraculous healings I've ever seen. A miracle that's harder to pull off than giving sight to someone who's blind. People can do that today. There's versions of where people lose their eyesight and they get their eyesight back medically. People can get better. They can heal. They don't always heal. They don't always get better. But when people are sick, healing is possible. They can heal. But the miracle we're going to look at today, well, I, I can say that I'm not sure I've ever actually seen it happen. That's how miraculous it is. I've read stories of it happening, maybe, but I've never met anyone who it happened to. That's how crazy this story of healing is. So let's jump to Luke chapter 18, uh, from Luke chapter 18 to the next story, Luke 19. It's the story of the blind beggar happens right before this one on purpose, for they want us to understand that these are intricately connected. They experience the same kind of miracle, but from opposite ends of the social economic spectrum. So here it is, Luke 19, verses 1. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho. Jericho um, was a good walk from Jerusalem, and he happened to be in the area. I had a chance to go to Jericho when I was in Israel, and it's a fascinating place. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. 
He was a cheap tax collector and was wealthy. Now, if you grew up in the church, in some traditions, you've heard of this guy. How many have heard of Zacchaeus before? Yeah, you know, so you're familiar with the story. You might have even heard the song. How many know the song? Um, it's great for little kids. Uh, so good, I found a little version of it here. It's, uh, it's just like you remember in Sunday school where Jesus is white and the song is horrible. Let's play it here real quick. Yeah. If you're experiencing this for the first time, friends, this is what you missed out. Just once. <laughs> once <it took> <laughs> um, anyone know that song? Anyone grew up singing that song? Yeah, yeah. Probably know the emotions. I've forgotten them. That's the story, but the song doesn't even begin to tell us what the story is really about. The next verse, verse three. He wanted to see Jesus, who was, uh, he wanted to see who Jesus was, right? So he heard of Jesus, he wanted to see Jesus. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. I, like I said, I had a chance to go to Israel a few years ago with my parents. They, they blessed me and Alyssa with a trip uh, before we had Finn. And uh, I took a picture of a sycamore tree in, in Jericho. This, is, this one's very old. Some say sycamore trees can even live a couple uh, a thousand years or more. I don't know if that's true, but Google said it. Um, but they can't track the age of sycamore trees, according to this Google article. Fact check it yourself, um, because they don't have growth rings. But I do remember, I don't remember the details, but I remember when we stopped and looked at this tree that it, I was told that it was, that it was very, very old. So that's a picture I took of a sycamore tree. Uh, side note, the nuts are great. Uh, they, they roast them, and they're delicious. So sycamore nuts, big fan. They would pass them out. You could buy them anywhere. So that's a, the sycamore tree. Uh, this is what he would have maybe uh, climbed up. And just like every other miracle story, he runs out to find Jesus. But there's something keeping him from getting to Jesus. All of his wealth couldn't buy him an audience with Jesus. And that's important to note. He was rich, but he couldn't get an audience with, he, he could probably get an audience with every other person. And, and today, if you have enough money, you can get an audience with just about anyone. It, it, uh, pastors not excluded, pastors of large churches. If you're a big donor, you've probably met the pastor. It's just how things work. That's how the world runs in almost every segment of society. But not with Jesus. No amount of money could give him access to Jesus. You couldn't see Jesus simply because you were rich. It didn't work like that. And wealth wasn't a sign that you were somehow more loved by Jesus, an important reminder today, uh, and our wealth is a blessing from God culture. No, wealth couldn't buy a spot with Jesus. He had to go out and find Jesus for himself. And he wants to see Jesus. And we don't really told, we're not really told why. We'll get to that in a second, but whatever the reason, he will have to get to Jesus on his own. But he's short and the crowd is busy, and so the, this is the classic barrier to any miracle story. He has to get past the crowd, so he climbs a tree. He doesn't push through the crowds. It's an interesting part of this story. He climbs a tree, hoping to see Jesus. What we know is that this guy is rich, and Jesus has not been kind to rich people so far in Luke. Um, in Luke, the wealthy and the rich are very strategically condemned over and over again. Here's how one commentary puts it, uh, the New Interpreter's Bible commentary. If you guys put that slide up. Here's what it says. The rich were, have not fared well in Luke. Jesus pronounced woes on the rich in Luke 6.24. God called the rich farmer a fool in 12.16 and 20 and required his soul of him. 
The rich man went to Hades, while Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, a a metaphor for heaven. And Jesus observed how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God in, in, in 18, 23, and 25. So given this context up to this point, the reader may therefore initially expect that Jesus is about to meet a person on whom he will pronounce a severe judgment or on whose dishonesty will be dramatically exposed. So as you're reading this, if, if you're imagining yourself as a first-time reader and you're not just jumping into the story halfway, you can expect, if we were reading the story in context, for Jesus to just rail on this guy. In fact, we'll see later that of all the rich people Jesus encounters, Zacchaeus is actually the worst. He was a traitor to the Jewish people and a swindler and a cheat. He wasn't even rich, but he, he wasn't rich honestly. You know, like He was rich because he was a crook. The tax collectors of this time were contracted by the Roman Empire, and and they would collect taxes plus whatever else they wanted. They would say, well, you need to pay this amount in taxes, and then they'd pay Romans what the Romans wanted, and they'd keep the rest. This is common practice. So he stole from the Jewish people in the name of Roman Empire, and as a Jewish person, they hated him. So we would expect a, a, a nice judgment, a woe to you, to Zacchaeus. Look how bad you are, but look what happens. Next verse. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I just got to say, um, this is, you know, in, in our community, uh, if you're new with us, uh, this might be news, but in our community, we can be a little, little judgmental towards the wealthy, um, you talk to, depending on who you talk to, they might not have nice things to say about Bezos. I'm just warning you. Not everybody, but there's a, there's a tendency to be a little me included. And yet here we see the story who was wealthy, not even honestly. And Jesus is like, hey, let's have lunch. It's a convicting reminder. Of course, in the backwards, upside-down kingdom of Jesus, he doesn't condemn him publicly. He invites him over for dinner and likely uh, maybe one of the better dinner he, he gets, given the fact that Zacchaeus had so much money. Um, in, the, in the classic miracle format, people see Jesus go to the house of Zacchaeus, and they get upset. Next verse. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. They know how bad Zacchaeus was. They likely hated him, financial crook. That's what it meant to be a tax collector. And Jesus is just going to go and be his guest. Imagine if I went and had, you know, lunch with somebody that you hated. Just pick a politician that you're like, whew, they're the worst. Don't say it out loud, Jesus. Joe's going to have lunch with them? What does that mean? Does he endorse what he says and what he's done? Is, you know what I mean? Jesus is eating with Zacchaeus. We aren't told what he said or what Jesus does, but here's what happens as a result of Jesus going to his house. Oh, man, I would have loved to see this conversation. But we're not told. Here's what happens. Next verse. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He does two things here. He, He makes up, he makes amends for the ways in which he's, Stolen from people. All right, so he's done, he's done unethical things, and so he makes up for it by giving back four times what he stole. That's generous. So that's one thing he does. 
The other thing he does, on top of all the wealth he acquired illegally and unethically, he also is wealthy, and he's going to give half of that to the poor. So four times what he stole from people, he's going to give back. I mean, talk about the bookkeeping mess that he's just created for himself. And then over here, the remainder of his wealth, he's going to cut in half, and he's going to give it to the poor, most likely through the church, because that's, how, that's who, who took care of the poor, at least if they were following Old Testament law, which at this point, given the state of the religious rulers, maybe not so much. Let's pause there for a second. This is a miracle story. And this is the miracle. This is also a healing story. And this is where the healing takes place. And it's just as miraculous. And the healing is just as profound and just as whole as the blind beggar who got his sight. As the demon-possessed person whose demons were cast out. A man who had stolen and cheated his way to the top acknowledged his wrongs and not only makes things right, but goes above and beyond making up for his wrongs by giving half of his money he gained fairly to the poor. If there was ever a miracle in the Bible, it's this. I'd say, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, number one miracle in the Bible, but this has got to be in the top five. And here's why I say that. Have you ever actually met someone who was wealthy and gave half of their income to take care of the poor. Maybe a few of you have. I don't know. Statistically, maybe. You've certainly met Christians before, right? You've met people who claim to follow Jesus. And you've probably even met Christians who are wealthy, right? I'm becoming wealthy. Bought a house, and it's appreciating in value. Technically, my net wealth is still negative because I've got, you know, mortgage and school loans, but becoming wealthy. Oh, I've, you know, we know Christians. We know people who are following Jesus, and we know people with wealth. Maybe not net wealth, if you're like me. But have you met someone who's given up half of it to take care of the poor? I haven't. I've read stories about it, but I've never met someone who was rich and gave half their wealth away. I've known plenty of people um, who are poor who've given half their wealth away. It is one of the benefits of being poor. I, had a, I, was, I was very good friends with a homeless individual for a while. I met him through one of the ministries that we do. Uh, he became a friend who was, had him over to his house, our house, a number of times. And um, he actually came and spoke here a few times. We became friends. And there were a couple of times where he gave me gifts, things that he had, that I would say were probably half of what he owned <laughs> because he didn't own very much. So that's, you know, I've seen that. I've met people like that. But someone who has an immense amount of wealth and done it? Now, here's the thing. I've, I've met people who've experienced healing, physical healing. I've met people who've, who've experienced mental health, healing uh, from, from mental health and spiritual healing. I'm not sure that I've met this kind of miracle before. Or I've met this kind of healing before. Financial healing. At first glance, we can see that this story follows the pattern of the miracle healing story. A person has to uh, overcome the crowds and the judgment of people to meet Jesus, and they experience a miracle. The one thing that it lacks at first glance is that all of the other stories, if you remember the formula, in fact, could you bring that formula back up, the, the one, two, three, four, five uh, list? One of the things that, that, that isn't quite obvious at first is, number one, someone who is desperate. 
You know, it's interesting because Zacchaeus, he comes across as desperate, but but we're not really told what his his flaw is. You know, what is his his disease? What is his illness? What is his brokenness? We're told that he's short, and that makes seeing Jesus difficult, but shortness wasn't the problem he was trying to fix. He doesn't end up tall at the end of the story. You see what I'm saying? Like, Jesus doesn't help him grow. So what is the illness? And one of the reasons why at first glance when we read Zacchaeus and, 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 and we read it and we're like, well, what was his problem? We glance over it because of our social construct and we live in America and we live in a society where literally Christian teachers will tell you that wealth is a blessing from God. Okay, that is a popular teaching. Wealth is a blessing from God. And because that's a teaching that people, it's not what the Bible teaches, but it, because that's a teaching, we read over this and we, we glance over the fact that actually his illness is listed right in the second verse. Bring it back up. Jump to, to verse 1 and 2. Starts with Jesus, yeah. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. The early church would have picked up on this right away. This was his illness. On the one hand, he was a chief tax collector, which means by association he had cheated people. He was unethical. He'd made mistakes. On the other hand, he was wealthy. Now, I know this is an American heresy, to suggest this is more controversial than challenging the notion of miracles, which I'll bring back up here in a second. But I'm here to tell you that wealth, unchecked wealth, is a disease. And while it might provide for you in every area of your life, and you'll be able to pay for the best doctors and the best therapists and the best schools and the nicest house and get all the comforts, wealth, unchecked wealth, is the disease that will leave you spiritually and financially sick. Here's how Paul puts it. Jesus isn't the only one. He talks about money. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, he explains like this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I grew up in a Christian culture and um, a Christian home and a Christian, you know, most of my friends were Christian. This verse used to be summarized. People used to say, uh, maybe you heard it this way. Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that proverb? And that's how people would summarize it. Money is the root of all evil. And there would always be somebody, like in youth group or a pastor or like a businessman, who would correct you if you said it like that. I experienced this more than once. Maybe you never have. But I experienced somebody where if somebody said money is the root of all evil, and they say, well, not money. Money isn't the root of all evil. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I never realized until this sermon that that's actually a really good example of what it means to have a love of money, where you feel you need to defend money's reputation. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's like somebody's like, oh, whew, I thought it was money was the root of all evil. It just turns out the love of money is the root of all evil. That's good news, because I really love money. <laughs> Wait, what? In fact, if you don't love money, you have no problem summarizing it as money is the root of all evil. I believed in God my entire life from a very young age. Grew up in a large family. Seven kids on a a pastor salary. My my dad made $18,000 his first year as a pastor. Now, this was... 20 years ago, so maybe that was a lot of money. I don't know. Seven kids, though. It's a lot of mouths to feed. Never seemed to have enough. 
Grew up in a mindset of scarcity. My, my parents did, went above and beyond making sure that I had whatever I needed. Never went without. But we also didn't enjoy the luxuries that Finn enjoys now. The kid with his own iPad, are you kidding me? You don't get your own iPad when you're one of seven. Recently, because of the generosity of our community, and I've shared this in more than one setting, like this is the first season where both me, Alyssa grew up in similar lower middle class society. This is the first time where we, if we need or want something, we can afford it. Between our salaries in the church and our, some of the stuff we do on the side and stuff, like we're pretty comfortable. Now here's the thing, I grew up believing in God my entire life. But you know what? It wasn't until I became financially secure that I stopped worrying about how to pay the bills. Where has my trust been? One of my biggest challenges around giving is going back to that scarcity mindset. I know some of you maybe have similar experiences where you grew up and you didn't have enough, where you worried that you'd have enough. And so to be generous, to give away half of what you have, well, how will I provide for my family? How will I take care of my son? How that's my biggest thing. But for others, the love of money is the challenge. And the love of money is an illness that, that can be healed. And if you struggle to give, if you struggle to say, hey, this is yours, free of charge. If it's not easy to give, if you could say to yourself, I would never give 50% of my wealth away. Just gone. Pro no problem. Give it to the poor. Well, then, why? What's going on? What's going on under the surface? Is this fear of scarcity? Is it a love of money? Is it something else? Giving large amounts isn't easy. In fact, I think it's entirely reasonable to assume that most people who have wealth will give a little bit here and a little bit there, but they're not going to give half. <laughs> I have no plans to give half of my wealth if I, had, you know, if I wasn't in the hole with debt, mortgage, and school loans. But even if I did, would I give 50% away? Even 25%. It just, it just doesn't happen very often. And so that's why when it does, I think it's a miracle. Jesus explains it like this in Matthew 19. He says, wealth or the love of money is such a pervasive illness, nearly incurable, that Jesus says this to his disciples. He had just talked to another rich person, a rich person who he gave. He said, hey, you want to be my disciple? Come and follow Jesus. He was different than Zacchaeus. He hadn't cheated anyone. Jesus said, he asked Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple? And Jesus says, follow the Ten Commandments. And the guy's like, I've been doing that my whole life. I've never made a mistake. Which, you know, at that point, you're like, well, you just lied. But, you know, we're not going to get into this. But you, you probably not followed the, all the way. But he, he was relatively good guy who could get away with saying I hadn't cheated people. I hadn't cheated on my wife. I hadn't stolen. I hadn't lied. He, he followed the Ten Commandments. Good Jewish man. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And the guy walked away sad. And the disciples were like, what in the world just happened? I mean, I'm sure Judas was over there. We talked about him recently. I'm sure Judas was like, man, he would make a really good disciple. He could really fund some projects. I said, Jesus, what's going on? Matthew 19, 23, 26 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, it takes a miracle. With humans, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible which is the definition of a miracle. With humans, this is impossible. Do you see why I might be a little cynical about miracles? It's not because I haven't met someone who's experienced physical healing, spiritual healing, mental healing, a supernatural encounter, experienced all of that myself in various times, and I've met people who have. I'm skeptical of miracles because I read a story where Jesus encounters someone And immediately, that person wants to give up half of their wealth to the poor. And I've met many, many people who have encountered Jesus who have not wanted to do that. I can't even imagine it happening. I don't see myself doing that, do you? Can you imagine it happening? It would literally take a miracle. I want to make a couple things clear because uh, some of what I've said was tongue-in-cheek and cynical and, and meant to be satire. So a couple things clear. I believe in miracles. I do. You know, and there's, a, there's a chance that someone uh, listening today is experiencing the kind of miraculous healing that we read about here or in some other way today. That is possible. I believe God is alive and active, and I have no desire to suggest to you what God can and cannot do. God is God, and I am not. And I believe that God shows up in this world in profound ways. Second, I have found that generosity, even just giving 10% of my income, to be an antidote to the way that power has money over people. I have found this to be true in my life. Generosity, or intentionally giving away a percent of my income, is to my financial health what taking anxiety medicine, which I take, is to my mental health. It's, it's part of the solution. It's part of the healing. You see, we live in a culture where it is common for someone to say, you should give to God so that you can be healed. Have you heard this? Buy this blessed cloth online, five easy payments and one really difficult one. It's a Mitch Hedberg joke. Anyone familiar with that guy? It doesn't matter. Okay. And you can be healed. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. By giving generously, not even necessarily to the church. If you're like, I don't want to give to the church. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not asking for you to give to the church. I think the church is a great place to give. I think this church in particular is. I'd love to make a case for it. That's not the point of today's sermon. The act of being generous is the healing that it actually changes us. It it transforms us. You know, the whole point of a a healing story at the end, the person is filled with joy and gratitude. And you see that in Zacchaeus' story. It's the last verse. You can put it up. He said, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You could have all the resources in the world, be as wealthy as anyone, And Jesus is still going to say to you, I've come to save you. I've come to seek and to save the lost. And that salvation 
or could also be translated here, healing, comes today to the house of Abraham. Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus led not only to his healing, but his salvation, not only his salvation, but his healing. He was lost, but now he is found. I know money is a touchy subject. Don't touch our money, Pastor. I get it. There's a lot of baggage around money. There's a lot of fear around money. There's a lot of shame attached to money. And I'm not interested in any. I'm not, not operating from a place of shame. I'm just telling you that one of the greatest joys of my life has become generosity. And the Old Testament talks about a tithe. The New Testament doesn't because it was assumed. And uh, I was taught uh, by a previous pastor, our mentor, Paul Reisler, who's a part of our parent church. I was taught that tithing is like training wheels. It's where we start. That 10%, I remember when I first made the commitment to do it, uh, uh, for me it was an integrity issue. I was a pastor and I knew my salary was paid because people tithed, and I, so I made a commitment to tithe uh, because of the integrity of it. But over time, there was a healing that took place in my heart and my mind, and now one of my favorite things to do is to be generous. Now, I don't say that so you can take advantage of me. I have really good boundaries, so good luck. But I love it, and I know you do too. It's beautiful, and it's life-giving. And the reason we as a small church are able to do so much of what we do is because there are people in our community who give very generously. I'm looking at you. You know who you are. I'm so grateful I'm grateful for not only what we're able to do, but I know that it has made you and it has helped shape you into generous people. That some of the most generous people who give financially are also some of the most generous people I've ever met. Just your interaction with them is the delight. And I don't think those are disconnected. That it is part of the healing that we can experience. So I challenge you, I I encourage you to think about it. I want you to know that there's no pressure. I don't, you you do you and I'm not going to judge you because of that. But I do find that this is a profound story of healing and miraculous power of God. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word and for the story of Zacchaeus, that there is uh, hope and love for, for even those that the world often tries to despise, for those people that we love to hate, for the crooks and the criminals, that you have a deep love for them. Lord, help us to allow that to change our interactions with people, the way in which we talk about people, the way in which we um, interact with people, the way in which we view ourselves, that there is hope for everyone. That you love us, and you want what's best for us. That you want us to, to, to shape us and mold us into whole human beings who are healthy and happy, who can engage in authentic relationship and make a difference in this world. We give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that is always at work in our lives. And God, I ask that there might be miracles in our midst. I know that it doesn't always show up and that when somebody's sick, they don't always get better. When somebody's hurting, they don't always feel better. And and Lord, we want to be a community that mourns with those who mourn. And not pretend like everything is always going to work out, but we trust that you are also able to show up. And that you can change our spiritual lives, our marriages, our relationships, and even our budgets. You're powerful enough to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.